Hey guys, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by Scoped Vision. Y'all probably know of PhoneScope by now, right? It's that technology that allows you to hook up an adapter to your cell phone and then place that on your spotting scope or binos, and you can record what you're seeing through your optic. Well, Scoped Vision is the evolution of that technology, and now you can actually record your hunt through your rifle scope. You've got an adapter, it attaches to your scope, and you record right there with your cell phone. It's awesome. It's scoped vision. You can find it at phonescope.com. My name is Jim Murphy. Won't you buy me whiskey? For I have a sad story to tell about a young man who delivered his companions straight to those fiery gates of hell. Just save himself from a prison cell. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Cable Smith. Welcome, everybody, to the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. That is Mark David Manders, Jim Murphy, kicking things off for us today. Uh, just real quick, though, before I forget, we've got a big event coming up down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas, June 27th through the 30th. Mark David Manders, along with his uh, running buddy, Max Stalling and Max's beautiful wife and fiddle player, Heather Stalling, will be out there for our fifth annual Guns and Guitars event. If you want to be a part of that, uh, spots are very limited. I think we can take 13 guests total, uh, six to seven hunters. And, hey, if you want to bring your wife, whatever. We've got a uh, couple's accommodations. I think we're about halfway booked up at this point. And this is the first time that we have mentioned it in public. So it's going to go fast. Uh, if you want to come hang out for the weekend, hey, cool. We'd love to have you. If you want to come and hunt, we'd love to have you do that. There's a lot of nice axis bucks uh, running around the ranch right now. Black buck as well. A few scimitar horned orcs and awdad that uh, you can get after. And of course, if you just want to come and drink Lone Star and sit around in the Pila pool, hey, uh, Mark and Max will be found at the Pila pool, I guarantee you. <laughs> so you want to hang out with them for the weekend. Uh, fully catered, food, lodging, all of it. Shoot me an email, LoneStarOutdoorsShow at gmail.com. If you want more information. With that being said, we've got a great show lined up for you today. So pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire here. Pour yourself another cup of coffee as we're, we're finally starting to thaw out this winter freeze. This very elongated <laughs> winter freeze seems to be hightailing it out of here, uh, which is great because turkey season is upon us. So grab that coffee and pull up that stool because off the top, we're going to talk some share lunkers with Texas Parks and Wildlife share lunker program leader Kyle Brookshire. Um, I need to be updated on what's going on with the share lunker program. There have been changes in it that I wasn't even aware of, to be honest with you. Uh, they've done a total revamp on how the highly successful share lunker program is being run. Uh, all of us know if you catch a 13 pound bass, you call Texas Parks and Wildlife. They come and uh, collect it, do some genetic testing on it, try to have it spawn, all that good stuff, right? Well, they have expanded that, and Kyle will jump on to talk a little bit about that, plus the genetic testing that they are able to do now allows Texas Parks and Wildlife to say, hey, this share lunker came out of another share lunker that was caught 13 years ago, and that actually happened. And they also found, uh, an angler caught, a sister of that other share lunker. So that's the mom and two sisters, and they've all been linked together through genetic testing. So cool. 
so we'll talk about that as well when Kyle jumps on here in just a minute because I am truly fascinated by uh, what science can tell you about wildlife today. Then we will switch it up and head to the skies with longtime falconer Lauren McGow, who is easily the most recognizable ambassador for falconry in today's age, uh, truly a time-honored art form and tradition that was born out of necessity thousands and thousands of years ago. I mean, people hunted with eagles for a reason. It wasn't to be entertained. It was to survive. So uh, Lauren, who has now been hunting with uh, eagles, I believe, 12 years, will jump on with us. We'll get into some of the cool stuff she's seen in her travels all over the world, from Mongolia to South Africa, Scotland, you name it. She's been there and done that and, and flown some of the most amazing raptors in the world. Uh, currently, I think she's flying... Uh, some kind of eagle that she picked up in Africa. Um, and so we'll get into all of that and what goes into maintaining these high-flying acrobatic athletes. Um, so cool stuff coming up with Lauren. And if you haven't seen, there is a 60-minute a, a special on her and her experience in Mongolia, um, flying eagles with the herdsmen in the mountains of Mongolia. Crazy stuff. But that's coming up here in just a little bit. And we'll spend quite a bit of time with Thorne today. A couple other things to mention. Our March Photo of the Month contest going on right now. I've got a Stealth Cam DS4K camera, trail camera, that we are giving away to this month's winner. Retail value, 300 bucks. So use that hashtag, LSOS Photo Contest, on Instagram. Put it up on our Facebook page or just email me your submission to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. We'll get you entered. Quick giveaway. I've got a Vortex Optics Mule Deer t-shirt that we will give away to today's winner. We'll throw in a Vortex cap as well. All you need to do to enter today's giveaway is email the word Vortex, that's Vortex, to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And we'll get you entered into this month's giveaway. Uh, we will be right back with Kyle Brooks here of Texas Parks and Wildlife. The spawn is upon us, and we're talking big bass after the break on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease we have the solution the system hog trap comes in two sizes 17 foot and 30 foot diameter traps after you trap the hogs take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder the system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence that way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com that's goinfencing.com Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts, just 30 minutes south of DFW if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs. You need to give them a call. Hunts are $250 a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is $150 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Dave Carrera from the Tuli.com, uh, and I want to thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Time away with friends is time reclaimed Following the tides and carried by the wind Lying here beside you with the salt upon your skin Cable Smith, welcome 
everybody back to the Lone Star Brewer Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thank you for being here today. That's On the Water, one of my favorites from Steep Canyon Rangers. We're actually about to head out on the water here with Texas Parks and Wildlife, Share Lunker Program Leader, Kyle Brookshire. But before we do that, uh, this segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer and the new Lone Star 24-7. The 24-7 is only 68 calories, 2.1% alcohol. That means for a day out on the lake, you know, or maybe you're tending to that uh, venison roast on the smoker for tailgate, or you're out at the deer lease doing those off-season projects. Whatever the case, Lone Star 24-7 is a great choice for those hot spring and summer days, which have to be coming soon, right? <laughs> anyway, check it out. It's the new Lone Star 24-7. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today as, uh, well, if temperatures ever warm up, these big old lunkers will be heading into the shallows. We've got a lot to get into regarding largemouth bass. It's my favorite time of the year to get after them. I know it is a lot of y'all's as well. And I, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit out of the loop on some of the nuances with the Share Lunker program. It's been, like I said, uh, been a while since Kyle's been on the show. Some things have changed, and we're going to get up to speed on those advancements, including some scientific stuff as far as genetic testing is concerned that I think you will find fascinating. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Texas Parks and Wildlife Share Lunker program leader Kyle Brookshire back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here again. I think it's uh, it's been a couple years. I know we've spoken before, but I believe that was uh, it was shortly after you took over this position, and uh, I'm not sure when that was, to be honest, but I know it's been a little bit of time. It has. It's been about three years now, I guess, since I started here. Okay. Okay, yeah, so it's been a while. Um, so how is the 2019 Sherlunker season going so far? It's going really well. I mean, uh, we relaunched the program last year in 2018 with some expanded features, and um, that was really well received, and so... You know, compared to the weather we've had lately across most of Texas, it's been a little bit less than ideal for most anglers' preference, but we still had quite a few entries coming in. We've had, I believe, over 60 entries to date, so uh, we average about one a day until the weather really gets good, and then we, we really you know start to see the numbers increase. But overall, we've had a good start to 2019. So we've, so we've already had 60 fish that are over 13 pounds this year? No, no, no. We've had 60 entered in the expanded part of it. So fish starting at 8 pounds or larger um, have been entered. We've had two fish over 13 pounds that have been donated. One came from Marine Creek, uh, which is one of our research lakes, uh, our public research lakes, for evaluating Sherlocker offspring growth. And that fish was actually a, a direct offspring from another fish that was donated and spawned here. It's actually mm-hmm. the sister of the one that was caught. In whoa, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to yeah. get into all that, but uh, I, I'm i still, my head is spinning right now because I did not know about the expanded program. So I always just assumed, you know, um, going. I've been doing this 10 years and it was always 13-pound fish. You guys will come pick it up, take it to Athens or to the nearest uh, freshwater fisheries center, and you know entered into the program now so now you're saying you guys are except eight pound fish correct so we let me expand on that just a little bit so we don't get confused but we still do what we call our bread and butter that's Uh the same process that we've done since the inception of the program 
Uh, we collect 13-pound bass. Uh, we selectively breed them here in Athens at our um, facility that's designed to do that. So in addition to that, we collect data on fish starting at 8 pounds or 24 inches mm -hmm. on up through the entire year. So historically, the program only accepted fish for spawning, the yeah. butter part of our program, for about seven months. And then when I came on, we reevaluated that process and really narrowed it down to about a three-month window where we had not only the majority of our entries coming in, but also the majority of those entries successfully spawning. And so we made that change, and when we actually would collect the fish in order to increase our odds um, through across the board of that spawning success. So uh -huh. January through March is when we collect fish over 13 pounds. Um, and bring them back and actually selectively breed them. Okay. So anything after March, you can't enter into the program? No, you can. Um, we've expanded it to be a year-round participation. Oh, this is great, man. I always hated that. I was like, well, you know, what if you caught uh, right before the spawn or, uh, you know, when it ha late, late spawn or whatever the situation that just didn't fall within the season, then you can't enter it into the program. But, you know, I think everybody's fish should be... Uh, allowed into it if it's worthy. So that's awesome. That's good news. Yeah. yeah, it's great news. And that's that's one thing we were excited about was just, you know, having the opportunity to collect that data and recognize those anglers for their achievement mm. year round. Well I'm certainly a day late and a dollar short on this deal. I mean I, I try to stay on top of things, but I had no idea about the expanded Sri Lanka program. So this is awesome stuff. Uh I'm a little um personally sad because I didn't know about it and I caught a ten point two three pounder uh, last it was about this time last year, biggest yeah. fish I've ever caught. Uh, so what? So what? What could I have done with that? I could have uh, sent you just some pictures, information, or like, how do you guys collect that stuff um, for the eight pounder or, or bigger yeah. fish? So for anything that we're not collecting for spawning, there's a, a couple of quick and easy required photos or types of documentation that an angler submits. So essentially, if you want to enter the program and any of those levels year round, you'll want to create an account uh, with ShareLunker, which is easy as going on the website or downloading our new mobile app that we launched last year, um, putting an email address and a password, and then you kind of put your general contact information in as part of your account. Hmm. And what that does is just sets you up to easily enter a fish. Um, so if you download the app and enter it from the water, you take a, a photo that documents the length of that, that bass or the weight of that bass, and you'll place it into the app as that documentation of the size of the fish and then submit it from there. Um, and it's as easy as that. It's really quick, simple, easy. Um, and what you're doing is you're providing some catch and genetic data for Parks and Wildlife to analyze to, to really, you know, determine the, the health of that fishery as related to large bass. Hmm. Okay. Right on. Right on. You'd probably kill me if I told you the details, but I'll, I'll just tell you anyway. Is uh, My scale... <laughs> was I I hadn't caught a fish worth weighing in so long that my scale in my, my fishing backpack, because I was just bank fishing, uh, yeah. was so corroded that I put the fish on there and it, it didn't, you know, it didn't work. So I had to run to 7-Eleven and buy batteries, had to tie the fish up. They, of course, get back there, or, or I had the scale with me, and then the batteries uh, still didn't get that thing fired up. So I had to drive to Cabela's, buy a new scale. Uh, the, the people in line were nice enough. I told them I had a big fish tied up. They're like, oh, let this guy go through. Let him go through. So yeah. and then I raced back over there, weighed her, and uh, released her. And um, anyway, 
I, and another confession is I haven't been bass fishing until yesterday since then. So basically almost took a year off because I was like, I can't do any better than this, you know. I'd reached the top of the, the mountain, so to speak. Yep, that's right. <laughs> that's probably the longest I've ever gone without bass fishing. I grew up doing it uh, nonstop with my dad, and I just uh, I was like, well, not going to beat that one. So, uh, But I'm getting the itch again. Springtime is here. It's a great time of uh, – the best time of year to go fishing, obviously, is these, these fat girls are – are putting on the uh, well, they've been feeding heavily, but starting to move into the shallows. I imagine this month is probably going to be a little delayed, though, with this cold weather we've had. It is, you know, that's every year is different, and you can kind of start to see the effects of of all these cold fronts and cold weather and high water on um, not necessarily the fish themselves, but the catchability of them. And and so, you know, a lot of these big females are they're ready to spawn just as they are every year around this time, but the water temperature just isn't quite there and the stability just isn't quite there. And so there's this delayed spawning effect. So I really think, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a lot of, you know, just a big boom in the number of big fish caught because once that weather gets right, you know, the second it's right, Mother Nature's calling and they go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What lakes uh, have been over the last couple of years producing the most sherlunkers? I mean, well, if we're at 570-something, you know, Lake Fork's produced about half of those over the years, um, just roughly speaking, which is amazing to think that of 500-plus 13-pound fish, Lake Fork has <laughs> turned out almost half of them. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Lake Fork's obviously the, you know, the, the poster child, as they say, for, for world-class bass in Texas, and it's managed that way. You know, from the very beginning, it was always established to kind of produce those types of fish and that larger fish. Those numbers, so that's that's. I think Lake Fork will always continue to be a producer. They they may have you know good years and and less productive years, depending on the ebb and flow of the, the age of the reservoir, or the weather, or the fishing pressure. You know all those variables that that go into actually catching that kind of fish. Um, but you know a lot of our West Texas lakes several years ago produced some some very large fish um, and, are, and are high producers overall in the program, but. They, you know, went through that drought season, and so when that happens, it kind of takes away a lot of your shoreline cover for not only um, newborn fish, but you know, your your prey and your other young predators, so your your one and two year old mm-hmm. bass, um, and so that kind of you know takes away that cover. You have a lot more predation, and so it kind of changes the, the dynamics of your lake. Um, but what happens in the meantime is whenever those uh, your riparian zones kind of creep in on the edge of the water what used to be underwater now has vegetation growing on it um, and then you get that huge inflow of water you get this new almost a new lake effect happen where you have tons of nutrients in the water and so you have just this boom what as as we'd say across the lake of uh, new fish new growth you know you just have a huge influx of forage opportunities for all ages of fish essentially and so that 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 will in turn you know produce faster um these bigger fish as long as you know they have that genetic predisposition to reach that size so in short we're starting to see you know as these these lakes that were affected by the drought pretty heavily come back you know in the next several years i think we're going to start to see a lot more produce from that area like ivy falcon amstead yep yep exactly okay right on well what I really wanted to talk about today, and, and we got sidetracked there because uh, 
I uh, obviously needed to be updated on the uh, advances in the Sherlunker program. Um, but what I wanted to discuss is that fish that you mentioned out of uh, Marine uh, Creek, which I believe was a 14-pound uh, 14.57 bass caught by Zach Seipert, and this was on January 26th. And I didn't know that you guys had such advancements in, in science, basically, that you could genetically test this fish to see if it was the offspring of a, a fish entered into the program, what, was it 10 years prior to that? Yeah, almost 13 years prior to that. Goodness gracious. So so this technology has been around a while, and uh, but this is the first I've heard of it. So so you've, you had this, this fish brought was it was it also I assume it was also caught in Marine Creek, right? It was. Okay. So thirteen years ago, Sherlunker number whatever, caught in Marine Creek, you guys take it, enter it into the program, it spawns, and then you go dump the spawn uh the the fry. Um what size are they? Are they fingerlings when you when you release them? It it varies, yeah. So let me back up just a little bit. So there was a, a fish caught it's Sherlunker four ten is its identifying number. Mm-hmm. But it was caught by, um, by a gentleman in Conroe, and that fish was loaned to us for spawning. And so what happens each year is a, an equal percentage of the total offspring produced that year is divided to each lake that donates. Uh. And so that way we don't – each lake at this point should get an equal share of those offspring. Um, so if, if Marine Creek donated a fish that year and it didn't spawn, then – we don't want to penalize it because this fish didn't spawn. Sure. You know, not every we don't force fish to spawn. We don't strip spawn them, as they say. Um, it all happens naturally. So if they don't spawn, then that just is kind of the cards that are dealt. Um, so we still provide a percentage of that offspring to each lake. Lakes. Okay. Now Marine Creek is a little bit different um, than your standard lake. It's it's a public water body, but we've taken several steps with Marine Creek over the years. Um, to give the larger amount of bass the potential to grow to that double-digit size. And so we we use it as kind of a extended public research area by selectively stocking it with thousands of Sherlanker offspring um, in 2006 and 2008. And that was that was really an evaluation lake um, to, to evaluate the growth of those selectively bred offspring. Hmm. Okay. So the offspring that were put into Marine Creek were, were direct Sherlanker offspring to do just that. From a fish that was caught out of Conroe 13 years ago. Yes, yep. So the, the actual mother of that fish came from Conroe. Wow. Now, the mother is back in Conroe, but the offspring that were in Marine Creek were the offspring of that Conroe fish. Right, right. Fascinating. Okay. And, you know, even adding more depth to the story, she's the sister of Sherlunker, well, I forget the number of it, but it was caught in 2017 out of Marine Creek. Yep, yeah, Sherlunker 566, which was caught by Ryder Wicker. So that was the uh, that was the first confirmed genetic direct offspring from a Sherlunker that had been donated and spawned in the past. And so that was a real big thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but it, it came out of Marine Creek, which you know is that research lake. Um, and it was a new lake record, you know, by almost two pounds. And then, uh, so that was the first confirmed offspring. Then a few weeks later, we got another confirmed offspring from a new lake, um, Natchitoches, down in East Texas, close to Nacogdoches. Uh-huh. Um, so that was another confirmed offspring. But then this year, we have, you know, another offspring 
which is actually the sister to that fish you mentioned, um, they're from the same exact spawn. So it's pretty it's pretty wild to see that happen. Uh, you know, and it almost was a pound and a half heavier than than the one that Ryder caught. Yeah, yeah. So a new lake record for sure for Zach Seifert. And, uh, but it, it's the science behind all this that's really fascinating to me, the genetic testing to be able to, you know, say, yeah, this fish is this fish's sister, this is its mother. Uh, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty neat to be honest with you. It is. It, it's cutting edge stuff. I mean, you know, Toyota has been with us since 2009 as a title sponsor and not only do they help provide all the recognition swag, you know, the stuff we all get as anglers for earning the program. Um, but they, they also allowed us the ability to acquire this advanced genetic equipment. Um, you know, before we could analyze the the influence of its genetics. So is it a northern strain? Is it a Florida strain? Is it an intergrade um, fish, which means they're, they're a mixture of one of the two. They have influences from both mm-hmm. strains. But now we can really dig deeper into that and understand. Uh, we can understand that influence better but we also can determine its lineage, so who its parents are, who its brothers and sisters are, um, and, you know, track further down the, the line of, of its lineage. So it's, it's pretty it's pretty wild. Yeah, absolutely fascinating technology. Um, very cool. Well, so um, if anyone out there wants to enter, well, anything they catch over 8 pounds or, you know, if they catch that fish of a lifetime, 13-pounder, uh, what is the what is the the website they can go to, or where can they find that app? Yeah, we launched a new website as well last year, so it's TexasShareLunker.com, and that's Texas spelled out T-E-X-A-S ShareLunker.com. Um, you can find all information related to the program process, you know, the rules requirements, how to enter, um, and, and you, you can also find the link to the app there, or you can go to the Google Play or App Store, search keyword ShareLunker and download the app. It's completely free um, and, and the same process for entering your fishes there. You just take a couple of the required photos um, in the app. You submit that to uh, to us through the app. It's evaluated by a committee um, and, and if the, it's approved as an official entry in one of those other categories, um, but then you receive a small congratulatory package. Basically, I call them catch kits with, mm-hmm. uh, with some different tackle items and you know, clothing items, branded Sherlocker items um, as a congratulation for the size of your fish. And at the end of the year, we give a, a $5,000 shopping spree to Bass Pro Shops to one lucky angler that entered the program throughout the year. And that's just a random drawing? It is a random drawing. So it, it, your odds of winning are determined by the number of fish you entered. You're not, you, you can enter more than one fish um, throughout the year, but it has to be within the, the season that you caught it. So you have to have entered it in 2019 and caught it in 2019 for it to be eligible for that drawing. Mm, okay. So in addition know. to that, we for those anglers that catch you know a 13 pounder, we're also giving away a $5,000 shopping spree to one of those anglers um, that entered January through March. So there's two shopping sprees: one for those that that loan a fish. Um, 13 pounds or larger, we call it the legacy class, and then one for every angler that enters throughout the entire season. Okay. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Well, I was just looking at my phone while we were visiting there to uh, find the date of when I caught that that 10-pounder last spring, and it was uh, March 11th. So you think she'll be in that same uh, same spot? (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. (laughs) 
I'm going to be right there uh, with my ass perched on that bank trying to find her again. There you uh, go. Well, hey, I certainly appreciate the time, Kyle. Um, it's been uh, it's been great catching up, and man, we de- we definitely needed to catch up. That is for sure. So thanks for jumping on. I got to go wet a line, man. I'm 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 itching to get out there right now. There you go. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. You too. Thank you. All right, there he goes, Kyle Brookshire, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Share Lunker program leader. I'm totally like infatuated and fascinated by that technology to be able to tell the offspring of a certain fish. And this is 13 years ago, mind you. Uh, and then know that these fish are sisters. They came out of the lake uh, on different years. Wow, that's pretty cool. And uh, tells you a lot about where we are in the uh, grand scheme of things when it pertains to wildlife management and growing those big fishies. So, cool stuff there. That segment was brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, if you're looking for your own little bass fishing honey hole, you want to grow some big bass, hey, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping folks finance their own slice of paradise for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. And hey, maybe growing big bass isn't important to you, but growing big deer is, or you want to run cattle, or you just want to get the hell out of the big city, whatever the case. They've got you covered, and you can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Coming up next, we sit down with the Eagle Falconer herself. Lauren McGow jumps on. (laughs) You want to hear some crazy tales about traveling to Mongolia and Africa, all in the name of falconry? Then you'll want to stick around right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. And they get by. They get by We all get by By the grace of God We all get by Pike County, Illinois and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Lift your eyes and see through the sorrow. Muster all the strength you can borrow. And live for tomorrow. Though you're down and down to your rival. Know your faith is linked to your survival. The late great Brandon Jenkins, Be the Revival, is the name of that one bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Brandon, of course, gone way too soon, passed on to the next horizon last year. Uh, But his music lives on, no doubt about that. I'm Cable Smith. Uh, Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Thanks to you all for being here today. I do appreciate it as we are all set to talk some falconry. And I mean, 
not just the uh, the little peregrine falcons, not that those aren't cool, not the red-tailed hawks, not that those aren't badass as well, but I'm talking like eagles. Like, hey, we're training golden eagles to, to go kill big stuff, right? Okay, we're doing that in just a second with Lauren McGall, but first, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. If you haven't seen the news lately, uh, Dallas Safari Club has been on the forefront of quite a few issues regarding hunters' rights. The Markor hunt that happened in Pakistan, which drew the ire of the anti-hunting community. DSC was right there putting out the proper, the correct information on how that $110,000 that the, the actual hunter who took the Markor uh, which is a goat, by the way, um, 80% of that went back to the local community. The other 20% went directly to Pakistan's wildlife governing body. So, once again, hunting is conservation. DSC is the leader on big game conservation, and you should be a part of it. I certainly am, and I'm a proud member of Dallas Safari Club. For more information, check us out at biggame.org. Uh, all right, well, let's go ahead and get into an absolutely fascinating topic of discussion. For me personally, I love birds of prey. The bigger, the better. And Lauren McGow's life work is in that exact vein. It's who she is. It's what she does. She's the Eagle Falconer, and she joins us now. Lauren, thanks for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. So, um First of all, where in the world are you? I know you do a lot of traveling. I'm currently in Kingman, Arizona. Uh, there's really great opportunities for flying eagles out here in the desert. Oh, wow. Awesome. So uh, you know a couple of my friends that I've hunted with, and Sheldon uh, Nickel and uh, Jay Limmer, and they've got some nice peregrines and, and Cooper's hawks. So I've hunted with them a couple times. My experience has been very limited, I think three times total. Uh, but it's something that every time I go, I, I absolutely enjoy. Um, it, and to me, it's like, uh, you know, I've got a lab and we hunt anything that flies, you know, anything with feathers together. And, you know, they're kind of like their labs, um, but maybe with a little more intense training. <laughs> so as far as a little bit about you, where are you from? And, and tell us when you first took an interest in falconry. Yeah, so I'm from Oklahoma, uh -huh. and I found out about falconry when I was 14 from a book in the library. And I thought, I, I didn't even know it existed. I thought it was something knights practiced back in medieval times, <laughs> and had no idea that it was possible like, in modern day in the U.S. And I read this book called A Rage for Falcons by Steve Bodio, and thought, oh my God, I have to do that. <laughs> and so I went to... This was 2001. I went online and I Googled Oklahoma Falconers Association and the page came up and I called the president of the club and he took me hawking and, and I knew, I just knew I had to do it from then on. Wow. Okay. And so that was 2001. I know you're not supposed to ask a lady how old you are or how old they are, but it's 2019. So uh, how old are you? <laughs> yeah, so I'm 31. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. So a young lady. Um You've been doing this for quite some time then. What is the, you know, you said that the president of the Oklahoma Association took you for your first time. What happens next? Give us a brief overview of the process 
to become a a licensed falconer because I know it's a it's a tedious and and kind of a long road. Yeah, it's the most highly regulated field sport or hunting sport in the U.S. So this guy Rob Rainey took me hawking, and he he had three daughters that were about my age, but none of them were interested in falconry. So it, it worked out well. He enjoyed. Uh, take me out in the field, and I enjoyed learning from him, and he agreed to become my official sponsor. So you have to have a general or master class falconer, so not an apprentice falconer, hmm. agree to mentor you for two years. And they, it's a signed agreement. Yeah. And then once you have that, you have to pass a test, a written test on falconry, mostly about the husbandry of the birds and, and the history of the sport. <clears throat> Uh, and you take that at, I took it at the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. And once you pass that, <clears throat> you build an, a, what we call a muse, which is like an aviary for a bird of prey. So it's inspected by the state to certain specifications, and then you're ready. So you've got, you've got your muse for your bird, you've passed a test showing that you know how to take care of them, and you have... Um, a sponsor or a mentor that's agreed to guide you through your first two years of falconry. Okay. Very detailed. So what was the first bird that you had? Yeah. So at the time, you could own for your first bird, you had to trap either a passage, which means a first year, red-tailed hawk or a kestrel. So Ah. kestrels are very cool little falcons. American kestrels. But they're mostly... Yes, the American kestrel. The smallest. I think that's the smallest uh, falcon we have. Exactly. Yeah. They're just like 100 grams of like pure predatory power. And uh, you know something but, about that bird? Uh, I think people don't even realize they're out there. But, you, I mean, you drive around any like pasture and you look at the power lines and they're always there. And they're, they're striking, you know, orange and blue. But really they're like the size of a pigeon, maybe even smaller. So... I think people are like, oh, look, there's a dove. But no, it's really like this badass little hawk. I mean, a falcon. Uh, totally. You're exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Any, cool. Anytime you drive past the pasture, like look on the power line, on the actual line, and you'll probably see a kestrel sitting there, yeah. meaning to pounce on anything. Uh-huh. Um, but so they're specialized to hunt starlings and sparrows and quite small things. Uh-huh. And red-tailed hawks are great for cottontails and jackrabbits and squirrels. So I wanted to do something on a little bit bigger scale. So I chose a red-tailed hawk. And the reason that you're required to trap your first bird from the wild, at least then, is that, so these are birds that are raised by their parents. And um, if, if at any point you decide that you don't enjoy falconry and it's not for you, you can release them back to the wild and they quickly... It's amazing how quickly forget any training that you've given them, any hunting you've done together, revert back to their wild state and carry on with their wild lives. Hmm. It's it's a you can borrow them just quickly if needed. Um, but for as a falconer, the beauty of a wild trapped bird is it already knows how to hunt, it already knows how to fly. All you have to do is convince that creature that to do it in front of you, that you're all right to be around, to to tolerate your presence which typically takes about a month to six weeks, not as long as as you might expect. Um, So my sponsor, Rob, helped me trap a female red-tailed hawk in January. Um, It was 2002 by then, and um, 
she hit the trap and I, I had never been hunting before and I never trained an animal. And I remember he placed this wrapped up wild hawk in my arms when I was 14. <laughs> said, okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> I was a little bit excited, but a little bit freaked out too. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so how do you trap these? I, and, and Jay and Sheldon have mentioned, cause I think maybe Sheldon has a wild trapped one from like, I guess the peregrines migrate down to the Texas coast uh, in the winter time. And I think he yes. had one trapped down there, which I guess they, they kind of uh, congregate in that area. Uh, but I, I can't remember how he said he trapped that. I imagine it's all pretty similar. Yeah. Um, yes. So there's a, several different ways to trap. Um, the way Doesn't that it seem I weird my... that you can trap these birds that are protected? I mean, it's kind of odd, really. It's a privilege. American falconers are some of the most privileged falconers in the whole world. I'm really glad to practice the sport here. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, the thing is, falconry has no impact on wild populations. And uh-huh. We strive to treat our birds like athletes, and, and a lot of them we, we return to the wild. So it's a no impact thing. It's quite cool that we can do it in 2019. Yeah. So, how do you trap them? So, for my red tail, we use what's called a ball shotry or a BC. And it's like a little box made out of uh, wire mesh. And inside, you place something tantalizing to the hawk a rat, a mouse, gerbil, could be a small bird. And on top, um, attached to the wire mesh, are all these small nooses and made out of fishing line or something similar. Uh So it's very difficult for the hawk to see the the nooses, but they can easily see this rat running around in circles inside the the BC, we call it. And then around the ends of it are weights. So just to hold it down a bit so the hawk can't carry it. Hmm. And for red tails, like kestrels, they can be very urban. So we would drive... And see, oh, there's a red tail sitting on a <clears throat> on a power line, power pole, you know, on some backcountry road. And you would toss this BC out of your car window, and it'll land by the hawk on the power pole. And then you keep driving another hundred yards or two, turn around, pull out your binoculars, and, and wait, <laughs> wait to see if the hawk decides to go for this rat. Uh-huh. And if it does, so it'll cool. land on it and then start footing furiously at the rat but it can't reach it and its toes should get stuck in the nooses Mm. and it's pretty easy to tell when the bird is caught and then you step on the gas and race back over there and um, take the bird off the trap wow okay Uh, so that's how you got your your first uh, female and Mm -hmm. and so what did where did you go from there how long did you have this bird Um, what was what was your next bird because you've gone to, I mean, now you're at the the biggest of all of the species. Uh, so talk about where that, you know, uh, escalated to from, from that red tail. Yeah, so I flew that red tail throughout high school and my first year of college for five years. And then I released her back into the wild and uh, because I wanted to study abroad. Uh, I was at the University of Oklahoma, and they had a study abroad program in Scotland. And I knew that there was really good eagle falconry in Scotland. And I was always taken by this idea of hunting in partnership with a golden eagle. It's just fascinating to me. And it's one of the oldest, maybe the oldest kinds of falconry there is. Um, 
Uh, it started in Central Asia somewhere four or 5,000 years ago. And, of course, with an eagle, you can catch quite large prey. And so it makes it one of the most practical forms of falconry. Um, so, you know, a rabbit every once in a while with a red tail or a sparrow with a kestrel, you know, won't sustain you. But if you catch a roe deer with your eagle, man, there's there's something you can live off for a while. Right, right. Uh, um, so, yeah, so I went to Scotland and I mentored, or I, I was mentored by two brothers that flew golden eagles there uh, on the moors, on the same place where people hunt uh, red grouse, so those beautiful shoots on red grouse on open rolling moorland. Um, there's an animal there called a blue hare, like a mountain hare. It turns white in the winter. And these guys specialize in flying golden eagles on these blue hares. Hmm. And it was just totally fascinated and taken by it. Really exciting. Um, the cool thing about a golden eagle is that you can hunt with it off your fist. So the eagle can sit on your glove as you walk the ground and then when a hare flushes, fly it down and catch it. Or you can have the eagle soaring over your head, which in Scotland it was often quite windy. And so the wind would push against these hillsides and make a lot of lift for the eagle. And the eagle could easily get up 500, 1,000 feet. And then you'd walk down below, often with um, dogs of some sort. We used um, wire hair pointers or cocker spaniels and... Um, uh, flush these hares, hmm. and the hare would flush, and you just you know, look around in the sky to see if the eagle was coming, and you'd usually hear it before you saw it. I mean, the wind rushing through the eagle's feathers is pretty intense. <laughs> it's all folded up like a like a bullet, and it comes down and and uh, either catches the hare or misses, and it's spectacular either way. And so I was um, 19 then, and that was my first exposure to. To eagle falconry, I thought, okay, this is this is what I really wanted. This is the next level, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. And then it worked out really nicely. I so I'd always heard of Mongolia as being this this cradle of eagle falconry, and Steve Bodio, the guy that wrote the same book that inspired me to start falconry, Rage for Falcons, became one of the first falconers to go to Mongolia. Um, once it, it opened up to the West hmm. and hunt with those uh, eagle falconers there on foxes off horseback. And so through him, I I started to get a good feel for what was going on there. It was very little known at the time. Hmm. And I applied for a Fulbright scholarship to go to Mongolia and apprentice under these eagle hunters for a year. And a tip for anybody that wants to get a Fulbright, if you choose a country no one else wants to go to, there's not a lot of competition. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there was something like eight eight applicants and five scholarships from Mongolia. So I I got one. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, let's do this um, because I'm certainly enjoying the conversation. Let's take a quick commercial break, come back, and and let's talk about your travels uh, abroad. I know you've been other places besides Mongolia. And then also uh, what goes into acquiring a golden eagle. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right. And that segment, by the way, was proudly brought to you by Pulsar, night vision, and thermal imaging technology. You know, now is the time that winter wheat is being planted. Actually, no. 
Well, with this rain, yeah. I mean, I know at my lease in Wichita Falls, the winter wheat's starting to pop up. Uh, and that means those piggies are going to be in full force in the fields. It's time to hit them with the thermal or night vision. And you can find the latest and greatest right there at PulsarNV.com, including the new Pulsar Thermion 30mm thermal optic. You can put it right there on any old bolt gun for you old-fashioned guys. It's the Pulsar Thermion. You can find their entire lineup at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from the Eagle Falcon and Lorman right here. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Hi, this is Captain Seaganson from The Deadliest Catch, and you're listening to The Lone Star Outdoor Show. I got a three-legged dog. I call Jake. Got the one back down, scars on his face. He tussled with the bag, came in second place. There's a little Chris Knight bringing us back on The Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, and I don't care. What you say, Deadliest Catch, one of the best shows of all time, for my money's worth anyway, and uh, that was Captain Sig from the Northwestern, we had on Captain Keith uh, from the Wizard, Captain Jonathan over the years, truly, oh, even Edgar uh, from the Northwestern as well, you know, one of those things where if you didn't have a wife, kids, responsibility, maybe that's what all those guys, those crabbers are doing is running from responsibility, trying to get off the grid, but uh, it certainly is appealing just raking in all that cash just from fishing. Uh, that, hey, it's called Deadliest Catch for a reason, but maybe in another life. huh? Uh, this segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Check out the brand new All Seasons Monolith. It is the evolution of the feeder game. And it's called a monolith because it's literally just one central support beam that's holding the feeder up. Of course, it's on a sled, so it's easily movable. All of the components are internally housed in that main column. It's the monolith, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. Well, without further delay, let's get back into it here. Talk some more birds of prey, specifically eagles with our friend Lauren McGow, who's made it her life's work to train and hunt with these giant birds of prey. Lauren, thanks for sticking around through the break. Certainly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, so we kind of left off where you had acquired a Fulbright scholarship to go to Mongolia, 
and study under these eagle falconers in Mongolia for a year. Uh, you must, re- I mean, obviously this is your life. You you, you love this. You, you'd have to to say, hey, I'm uh, you know an attractive young lady, and I think I'm just going to go live in Mongolia for a year. And uh, that seems kind of probably crazy to most people. <laughs> yeah, I looking back on it now, it, it really seems crazy. I think like <laughs> ignorance <laughs> played a, a good role for me in, in pushing me to go out there. My enthusiasm was so great to learn about eagle eagle falconry that I I wasn't concerned at all about any difficult living conditions and. Man, it was tough. Uh, so to be an eagle falconer there, you really have to be a nomadic herder. So you live in what's called a yurt. It kind of looks like a squash teepee. And the land isn't arable, so the entire livelihood of these people is built on animals. Huh. So they raise goats and sheep, and they have horses and camels and cows and yaks. And and your diet is 95% animal products. Wonderful! I'd sit right in. That that I would do well with. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually it's very interesting. So because there's no fruits and vegetables to get all the vitamins and minerals that your body needs, really every part of the animal, so the innards as well. Um, So I had a balanced diet. It was just a very different way to uh, a normal American. So let me ask Uh, you this, um, because I I I kind of I, I. I dance around the carnivore diet, meaning I, I probably eat 90% meat. I cheat a little bit. Uh, I do like my Lone Star beer. But you, I see all these people that are strictly eat 100% meat and maybe eggs, and they get real lean and, and muscular. Did did you notice any physical change as far as you know what that diet did for you? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, well, I will say, so it's, incredibly cold there in winter, which is the time of year when you're trapping, training, and hunting with eagles. Uh And you burn so many calories just being out there and flying these birds that um, I felt like it was the only thing that could sustain me (laughs) was this this kind of diet. Like, I I just, I was desperate for (laughs) real sustenance. So I, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I felt... I could do all the physical tasks required, and I felt good. Um, But, man, I was so bundled up in all these layers of fur. I'm not quite sure how my body composition changed. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what what I knew about Mongolia, like, before this conversation was Genghis Khan, and that's basically like it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, they love Genghis Khan. He's on their money. He's on all the vodka there. They have statues to him. He was a ruthless badass, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, man, he conquered half the world in yeah. in the 1100s, I think. Fueled by meat, I'm sure. Yes, meat and horses. Yeah, for transport, it's all you need. Yeah. So, all right, back back on topic. All that stuff is fascinating. Um, you're there and you're training under these guys. It's the dead or winter. I'm sure you said you're bundled up in all this fur, and you said that they're hunting uh, foxes off a of horseback. Yes. Wow. So <clears throat> the the wild eagles there predate a lot on foxes, and of course, um, so it's red fox, just mm-hmm. vulpus vulpus, but it has incredibly luxurious fur, and so what they use them for, the meat goes to the eagle, but the fur they use to make hats and all kinds of clothing 
to help them wow. during the winter. Okay. Um, yeah, and the reason it's off horseback is you're in the mountains, and these eagles weigh 10, 11 pounds. And it, it might not sound like a lot, but to have that weight balanced on your arm for hours, you really need you need a you need a horse to help you get over that terrain. And there's a little um, they call it a ball dock. It's a it's an armrest that pivots off the base of the saddle that you can slot your arm in to give you some relief from carrying the eagle. Hmm. But <clears throat> so you know the landscape is. To us, it would appear frozen and barren, so it doesn't support that many foxes to begin with, just the nature of the ecosystem. So to find them, you have to travel a lot of, you have to cover a lot of ground each day, which is the other reason for the horse. I mean, you know, 20 miles to get one or two shots on a fox. Wow. It's it's tough going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, so... so- these guys obviously trap these birds in the wild. Um, what, what happened after that experience? You, did you come back to the States and try to figure out how you could get your own golden eagle? Yeah, so they helped me trap a bird there and helped me train it, and I ended up catching about 10 foxes. I was very proud. Wow. Um, and then we released her back to the wild, and... And when I came back here, yes, I thought, okay, I don't see a lot of, there was almost no eagle falconry in the United States. There was a few people, mm-hmm. maybe half a dozen people, but they were very quiet and and um, you never heard about it. So I knew that we had this amazing population of eagles, all this public land, all this game, that there has to be a way to hunt like I did in Mongolia here in the state. And, of course, golden eagles are very protected. We actually have the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, which was enacted in the 70s, um, mostly because the way that the bald eagle population plummeted due to DDT. Mm-hmm. And golden eagles weren't doing great either. They were shot for bounties and poisoned. and um, But both populations, bald and golden eagles, have recovered brilliantly since the 1970s and are very robust. I saw um, a, uh, a bald eagle last weekend of duck season in, in Texas, North Texas, and uh, I've, I'm, I've definitely lost a few ducks to those sons of guns. Man, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I poachers, you got a cripple or one, you know, if you shoot five, the dog brings back four, the other one blows over to the other bank, you know. If there's an eagle around, bye-bye, bird. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool to watch. You almost yeah. be like, "Hey, go ahead and take it." I'd rather it's it's such a cool experience to see them. Uh, but <laughs> it's it's wonderful that they have recovered to that point to where um, you could somehow acquire one. Yes. Um, so when I came back, what some falconers had been allowed to do was if there was a non-releasable rehabilitated eagle, they could transfer that transfer that to their falconry permit. Hmm. So there were only a few a few birds like this, but say say the eagle was imprinted, like it fell out of the nest as a baby, and it imprinted on humans, and it couldn't be released, or or there was some injury that it could still hunt and fly, but it wouldn't be releasable, like they were missing a toe or two, or it had an eye injury. Um, so I was I was very lucky. Um, two falconers that couldn't fly these eagles offered them to me. So I flew an imprint female 
and an infant male um, on black-tailed jackrabbits for mm. several years. And that was a ton of fun. Um, man, an, an eagle and a jackrabbit are co- perfectly co-evolved over millions of years to both evade and outmaneuver one another. So you always see something spectacular play out in front of you when an eagle is chasing a jackrabbit. Yeah. Uh, and nothing nothing puts the fear of God in a jackrabbit more than an eagle. <laughs> it's just it's amazing the the maneuvers that they'll pull and then the aerial maneuvers that eagle will do to to counter that. See, I haven't uh, see, I haven't seen this uh, before. My experience is the peregrine flying over the duck pond, you know, with Jay and and Sheldon, and then you you walk up the bank and flush the ducks. But going back to that fear. These, the ducks won't get off the pond if they see that falcon flying overhead until you walk up and flush them. So that's why it's kind of like a team sport um, because they're, in, you know, inherently scared. They're like, if I get up and fly off that bird, that, that falcon's going to kill me. Yeah. I mean, the falcon won't attack them on the water. So so these jackrabbits, we're, you're from Oklahoma. Where did do you have, do you have a lot of jackrabbits in Oklahoma or do you have to move? Well, so I spent a lot of time driving to the Panhandle uh-huh. or Kansas. Southwest Kansas historically has had a lot of jackrabbits. I also spent some time in the Lubbock area in Texas, which is good for jackrabbits. So many. So yeah. all kind of up and down that, that general area. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's you become, first of all, like most hunters, you really come to admire the quarry that you're hunting. But you also are an amateur jackrabbit biologist trying to figure out, okay, what what kind of landscapes do they like and what are they eating and what are they drinking and how can I find them and is the population going up or down? And and there's almost no studies done on jackrabbits because they're you know, largely considered vermin in a lot of places, which which is a shame. <laughs> I would I would love to see some science on what they do and why. You've got these two eagles. Is is are those the same ones that you're still flying today and and then I want to talk about the CNN special. If that was filmed when you were over there doing your, you know, your study for a year, if, if you went actually went back over there. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently, I don't have those eagles now. Uh-huh. Um, one's with another falconer and one sadly died. Uh, it's an occupational hazard of flying these birds. You, you try, you can't help but get attached to them. But you try not to be too attached because at any moment something could go wrong. And uh, um, but I'm I'm currently flying uh, an African crowned eagle, which is a bit different for me. I I spent a year in South Africa rehabbing and hunting with a crowned eagle. Totally enjoyed it. Very different kinds of quarry, of course. And um, a falconer here had imported one and asked me if I'd fly her. So I'm currently introducing her to uh, jackrabbits here in Arizona. And um, it's been very, very interesting. She Crowned eagles are built like goshawks, which are incredibly quick hawks. Goshawks are for, they live in forests and they maneuver through the trees. And so this is like a goshawk in a seven and a half pound package that, excels within the first hundred yards. I mean, just flat, 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 flies crazy fast and has a really tight turning radius and maneuverability, um, much more than a golden eagle. What is their main prey in in Africa? 
I'm sorry, say that again? What is their main uh, source of prey in Africa? Well, they are specialized to hunt small primates like vervet monkeys. Um, oh, wow. But also uh, dictics and dikers, the very small antelope and deer. Oh, yeah. Or antelope species. I'm, um, I'm going to Africa else. in June, and uh, blue diker is, is, I think, on the hit list. So, oh yes, yeah. yeah. Keep keep your eye open for a crowned eagle in the canopy. I'm sure, there'll be one hanging about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, those dikers, uh, they kind of have a, a symbiotic relationship with, I'm sure, the monkeys that the crowned eagles hunt. The monkeys knock the food onto the forest floor, and so the dikers kind of follow uh, underneath these uh, these monkeys. So it's probably the eagles like, I don't, whatever, diker monkey, I'll, I'll just eat you both. <laughs> I did not know that. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, so now you're trying to train this this African eagle to hunt something that it's not, you know, accustomed to. Yeah. So it's <clears throat> um, so it has the speed and capability of catching a hare, but a hare is not something it would normally encounter in Africa. Um, it's such a predator-rich environment that most hares are totally nocturnal. And you don't see them in the same densities that we would get here. Uh, so, yes, that's um, a challenge, but it's it's been really fun because the, the best way to make an eagle happy, make them contented, make them um, calm in their surroundings is to hunt with them. They have such, they have such a huge amount of predatory instinct. It's what fills their entire brain, of course. And if you give them an outlet for that, then they become really wonderful to to, to keep. Hmm. Um, you know, an eagle that's not hunted is usually not happy and a huge pain to have to manage. But a hunted eagle is 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 one that's usually in a very mentally good place. So part of the reason I'm flying this eagle is to help to put it in that good place for breeding. Huh. So when she's mature, she can go into a breeding project. And, of course, it's always good to have sustainable captive populations of these animals outside the wild, just in case something happens to sure. them in the wild. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. They have a crown, of course, crowned eagle. So it's this other dimension of how they communicate with you. She'll put the crown up and put it down and oh, just trying to figure out how she's talking to me. <laughs> uh, she weighs less than a golden eagle, but her feet are a lot bigger and far stronger, huh. which is, it's interesting. It, it, I need a thicker glove. <laughs> uh, just out of excitement sometimes in anticipation of flying eagles will squeeze your glove. Just ready to go, and um, who I can feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so she's quite the uh, strong raptor. Let's do this, Lauren. Let's let's take a quick break. Come back, and I want to talk about what goes into the preparation as far as flying these birds and how often they have to hunt. So I don't know if you're trying to manipulate their body weight by feeding them X amount, you know, of ounces of meat every day, or how all of that plays out, and and then how often they actually have to eat in the wild. So cool to stick around for a few more minutes. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. That segment brought to you by Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. God forbid you come home from a hunt empty-handed, well, you know where to go. 
get your meat on by heading over to Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue. They've got smoked turkeys, my favorite, along with the lean brisket. They've got fatty brisket, pulled pork, uh, sausage, jalapeno sausage, breakfast tacos, you name it, plus all the sides and fixings, and you can find it at Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue. We'll be right back with more from the Eagle Falconer, Lauren McGow, right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffair for Hoffair's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffair's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there, Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. In the back left corner by the old pine tree There's a man I buried the first degree He told me his cheating wife was a whore And how the electric chair really lit up his world And all we got is a shovel and his callous hands And I dug every grave on this piece of land Hell, I had love yeah, Grave digger, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you for being here. We've still got some falconry stuff to get into as uh, Lord McGow was nice enough to stick around through the break. But before we get back into that conversation, this segment of the show is brought to you by one of the most versatile pieces in my hunting kit, and that is the First Light Obsidian Merino Pants. In the past year, I've chased everything from uh, spring bear to spring turkey, of course, whitetail, uh, backcountry elk, and this thing stands up. It is ripstop merino with stretch nylon, and the cool thing about it is that it fends off odor-causing bacteria, so especially important for bow hunters and ideal for those archery spot and stock situations in the backcountry where, man, maybe a shower is not an option for three four days even a week maybe longer check it out it's the obsidian merino pant and you can find it at firstlight.com first light go further stay longer all right let's go ahead and get back into it with lauren mcgall the eagle falconer who was nice enough to stick around lauren let me ask you about this you talked about how you treat these birds as finely tuned athletes and most falconers obviously do as well so discuss the dynamic of how to know when they're going to hunt most effectively. Do you have to weigh them? Will they hunt better on an empty stomach? And how often they eat in captivity versus how often they make a kill in the wild? So discuss that dynamic of hunting with these incredible birds of prey. Um, so, of course, in the wild, they might kill every couple of days, and they would eat much as possible when they kill something and then go sit on a branch for two or three days while they digest it. Uh-huh. It's not super practical for us as falconers because we, we we like to fly more often than that, three, four, five days a week. So we think of our birds like athletes, and you need to have them fit and confident because if they're not a jack or a duck or a grouse, 
it's just going to make them look silly. They'll leave them in the dust. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to also, you have to cultivate an appetite. So the bird has to have some appetite or it won't be motivated to go hunting just like anything. Um, so an, uh, practical way to do that is to use a scale. Mm-hmm. So I know if I put my eagle on the scale and she weighs seven pounds, eight ounces, she that's a weight where she has some appetite and um, will probably fly really well on, on whatever we're hunting. Um, if I put her on the scale and she weighs eight pounds, she might fly off and not even want to be around me or have anything to do with hunting that day. She'd want to go sit on a pole for a couple hours. Um, <laughs> I've seen that. In but you also, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, oh, exactly. that, that bird didn't want to hunt today. And now we're going to spend a couple <laughs> hours trying to con- convince her to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, Jay told me, he's like, to- these birds, they tolerate us. They don't, they don't really need us, you know? Yes. They are fully capable of surviving on their own without you. Mm-hmm. The, the whole thing is trying to convince them that you're a worthy partner and it's, it can be a day to day basis. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you've traveled to Mongolia, you've traveled to Africa. Um, you've, you've hunted with falcons and eagles all over the world. Take us through this, this CNN special. Uh, that where you were featured and and when that was filmed? Yeah, so this was um, CBS uh, sixty minutes. Uh huh. Oh, sorry, CBS. And yeah, sixty minutes. They they contacted me. Um, I there was an article about um, the male imprint that I flew. His name was Miles in the Amtrak magazine, um, and I I didn't even. I didn't expect anything to come of that. I didn't think anybody even read the Amtrak magazine. And Scott Pelly, who was the who's the anchor, one of the anchors for 60 Minutes, was traveling on the train and saw this article and was really intrigued by it. And so his producers contacted me, and we had a we talked on Skype and because I was in Africa at the time, and they expressed interest in uh, going taking me back to Mongolia to meet that family that I'd lived with and coming out hunting with me in Oklahoma. Hmm. And just, you know, this, uh, this strange story of a, a girl from Oklahoma spending a bunch of time in Mongolia to learn this <laughs> ancient sport nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> uh, so in October of 2017, they flew me out there. Uh, and the producers came and a couple of camera guys, and it was really great. I went back to that exact family that I stayed with. So 2009 was when I got my Fulbright. So it's been a little bit of time now. Sure. And, man, they totally, it was like I'd never left. They remembered me. They like, put an eagle on my fist as soon as I got there and really excited. And, uh, gosh, everyone had gotten a lot bigger and gotten married or had kids. Eating or... a lot of meat, yeah, that protein. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so were they at all put off by the cameras? You know, you're, this is a third world country, or, or were they excited about it? I think they were excited because uh-huh. part of the problem, because you have to be a nomadic herder to be an eagle hunter, an eagle falconer, is that most of their kids don't want that lifestyle. 
understandably. It's very volatile. You're dependent on all this livestock. A snowstorm could wipe them out. And so the kids are going to the cities and getting city jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the danger to this tradition continuing there is that not many young people are picking it up. And the tradition means a lot to them. So the fact that they get to tell their story to this crew, to people, even though they're you know, on the other side of the world, really, I think they really enjoyed that. So, so they came and, and filmed this, and that's what you you know what you can see on the the CBS uh, 60 Minutes special. And I'm sure if you want, if folks wanted to watch that, I'm sure they could find that on uh, YouTube or the internet. Oh yeah, if you just Google 60 Minutes I've Eagle, bits and pieces it should pop it, right so up. I haven't actually yeah. seen the entire thing. It's, we're kind of uh, running out of time here. Lauren, a couple other things I wanted to ask you. What is what is the most incredible thing you've seen one of your eagles do? Oh man, that's a great question. I don't know if they caught something because I'll tell you one time, and I'm not going to say whose falcon did this, but they accidentally. <laughs> you think about how small a peregrine is, killed like a, a turkey vulture. Like, <laughs> wasn't supposed to do that, but it did. You know, and uh, and like legally, they you know they didn't get in trouble. It's just there's laws in place that says yeah, it's just you have to let it lay. You can't you know if it was to catch like a. a a black-capped vero, a protected bird like that, you, you just, you know, you just, it is what it is. Um, but uh, it was pretty incredible to see this little falcon kill this vulture, and I think it was like a, you know, territorial thing, like, hey, get off my lawn. Yes, and we can't control them entirely once we let them go. Sure. They're wild animals, yeah. Man, so I've been flying eagles for 12 years now, and seen a lot of things. I'll tell you about in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so we flew the crowned eagles on Steenbach antelope. Um, are you familiar with Steenbach? I've got one in, uh, that is being shipped right now. So yes, I shot one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. perfect. Which is bigger than a diker. I mean, they're they're a little. You know, that's uh, I think a twenty pound animal for sure. Yeah, they're they're big. Yeah. And what I didn't realize is that so they're pursued all the time in the wild by cheetahs and eagles. So they are incredibly fast, fast enough to outrun a cheetah, and then they're like jackrabbits in antelope form. So they do all the same moves that a jackrabbit does, except as this little antelope, they'll do a 360 or a 180. They'll jump at the last second when the eagle tries to com- commits and tries to come in to grab it. Um, I, it's really spectacular. And so um, we were flying the crowned eagles and and uh, uh, just walking through the brush in South Africa, which another thing I love is you literally never know what's going to come out. Uh-huh. It could, could be anything. <laughs> uh, so the steamboat gets up and the eagle takes off after it. And uh, right as the eagle's coming in, does a 180 and starts coming back towards us. And then the eagle, you know, they can turn so well. It, it followed the 180 and is also flying back towards us. There's us, me and my uh, friend there, with a steambok like headed right for us, and it it squeezes right between the two of us, and then the eagle comes between <laughs> the two of us and can feel its wingtips brush against us, and and then uh, and then right as it was coming in to catch the the steambok, it jumped to the side, which <laughs> like this spring loaded. To the to the left there, and then the eagle crashed into the ground after it. It had already committed, and it couldn't get any lift again, and it just skidded into the ground. Um, 
So, I don't know, that's one of my favorite <laughs> flights I've ever seen. And it didn't it didn't end successfully. <laughs> no, exactly. It, yeah. it didn't. Um, sometimes I'm sure a lot of hunters can empathize with this. Sometimes well, I never the best I never days... go out and don't come come back to something. <laughs> 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 you know, it would be called killing if that's what if that's how it was. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The thrill of the chase is what keeps us going. Yeah. hundred oh, percent. I, I I love not knowing what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question. So I'm kind of a bird dork. Probably a lot of our listeners don't know this, but like before I ever started hunting, my my dad and I had a a Birds of uh, North America book, and when we'd see you know whatever species, maybe we went to uh, New Mexico and we saw a different hawk species that we don't see in Texas or you know, uh, we went camping and saw some kind of uh, sparrow that we'd never seen, or or finch, or whatever. We'd we'd mark it in that book where we saw it. We'd put the date. Uh, so that was kind of like my introduction into to I guess bird watching. I've always I've loved it ever since then. And uh, and uh, anyway, um, gosh, now I just derailed myself. Hold on, I'll think of where I was going with this. Oh, so yeah, so I'm kind of a bird dork, and there's this one eagle species that I've always been fascinated with. I think it's in South America, and it's called a harpy eagle, and I, I it's like massive. I don't know is is that the biggest eagle in the world? It's pretty darn close to the biggest. It depends on how you measure it. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm not sure if by weight or by total size, but it's it's way the heck up there. It's got a huge crown. I'm sure like your like your crown eagle, uh, but I've always thought this is just like the most badass bird, and it, it hunts like like big monkeys. I think. Um, when are you going to go to uh, South? America and, and hunt with one of these harpy eagles. <laughs> wow, you you know me so well already. <laughs> um, I actually just got back from Mexico to see falconry there. Uh-huh. The harpies don't make it up that far, but there's still lots of spectacular neotropical eagles there with that would make your jaw drop open with how different and cool they look. Um, so I'm gonna start with Mexico. Uh, maybe fly an ornate hawk eagle or a golden eagle there and just slowly work my way down. <laughs> right. <laughs> See right. if I can find a way for the opportunity to present itself as a harpy. <laughs> You'll end up in the Amazon before you know it. it so. <laughs> well, I, I certainly have enjoyed the conversation. Uh, like I said, birds of, of, you know, whether I'm hunting them or just admiring them, they've always fascinated me. And uh, obviously that's, that's your calling in life. If you want to tell folks uh, where to follow along, I know you've got an Instagram page. Yes, yeah. Um, on Instagram, I'm Eagle Falconer. Uh-huh. Um, I also have a, a website that's just my name, laurenmcgow.com, uh, where I put things like this that I do that are interesting. Well, I truly appreciate it. I love seeing your posts, and, and uh, you know, you're kind of living a – a life that I guess I just didn't have the the cojones to say I'm going to go to Mongolia and and uh, live there for a year when I was a young man, but <laughs> I'm certainly <laughs> jealous of uh, of your experiences and it truly is uh, amazing. Uh, no, I totally appreciate it. Next time in tech, I'm in Texas, you'll have to come out hawking with the eagles. I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. Well, thanks again, Lauren. I appreciate it. All right, thank you, man. Appreciate it too. So there you have it, <laughs> Lauren McGow, the eagle falconer and uh you know a lot of folks are into falconry i I say a lot a very small percentage of outdoorsmen and women are into falconry there's more than you think and there's organizations out there 
uh, for Falconers. Lauren has taken it to the next level, and as far as someone with a following and a presence and the ability to further this time-honored tradition, she's about as experienced and influential uh, a person as you're going to find. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by Stealth Cam. Check out the new DS4K, changing the game in high-quality 4K recording ability in a trail camera. It's the DS4K. You can find it at StealthCam.com. Unfortunately, we got to go. Got to get out of here flat out of time. Thanks to Lauren, as well as our other guest, Kyle Brookshire of Texas Parks and Wildlife's Sharewalker program. We'll do it again, same time, same place. We've got a big, big in-studio guest planned for next week, Parker McCollum, one of my favorite country singer-songwriters, will be here. He's setting the world on fire. Big, big things on the horizon for that young man. He'll be in studio, so you want to tune in for that, among other things. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. I've got a second chance. I'm going to make it count. Make my way out west, maybe head down south. Live a life of a pardon man. Believing in things I don't understand